0: going on? Welcome to Base Liberty Episode 16. Darren Wisely here. Thanks for tuning in. Today is Monday, September 28th, 2020. And before we get started, I just want to remind you to uh, check out and like my Facebook page, my Twitter, subscribe to my YouTube channel, wherever you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, and if you don't feel like looking all that up, just go to choosewisely.org. That's W-I-S-E-L-U-I, spelled like my last name. ChooseWisely.org, and you can find all of that. Sharing this stuff, it costs you absolutely nothing, but it's a way to uh, get the name out there and help me bring more content. I know I only had one video last week. I got caught up with some things. Sorry about that. Try to get more out uh, this coming week. And I have received a lot of encouragement. I've gotten some emails from people I've never met. And I want to say I really appreciate the support because that's how we're going to grow the show. Going to be able to bring you uh, more content. One of these emails I got said that uh, this individual really liked when I talked about the founders and the Constitution and constitutional history, and that's great because I'm really into that stuff too. I actually ordered a few more books because there's one uh, real specific topic that I wanted to get into, but I didn't feel like I quite had the knowledge on yet, so I'm really excited to kind of brush up on some of that stuff and uh, fill in the blanks um so we'll have an episode on that in the future and today because of that feedback and because of the topic in the media discussing the supreme court i did want to stay uh, on that topic if there's anything you want to hear about just shoot me an email about a topic you'd like to hear about and i'll take it into consideration if it's related to a current event um that'd definitely be great and if it isn't you know some of these topics will not be on current events um, really, I, I don't watch TV at all. So if something's big enough story in the news, maybe I see it on Twitter, look it up on my own. Um, but that's about it. So unless a current event's a real big story, I won't have anything like that to, uh, to go off of. Feel free to shoot me an email about a, a newsworthy topic or just a topic that uh, you might find interesting. Happy to hear that. I did see that President Trump is talking about nominating Amy Comey Barrett. I do want to do an episode talking about her, but I didn't feel like I was quite ready today. I want to do a little more research so I can give you a more substantive episode, not just kind of dance around the corners, uh, which I'm sure you know, the New York Times and all. This is an assault on our democracy uh, kind of thing. But I really wanted to give uh, a more thorough and honest take. And I also was considering doing... An episode after the debate that's supposed to be this week. Um, so if you guys are interested in that, let me know. Uh, now, if it's if the de- if there's nothing to talk about, you know, if Joe Biden just falls asleep and drools on the table, then I won't. But if, if if it's interesting enough or I have a take on it, then then maybe I will. So with all that out of the way, today we're going to talk about some more of the worst cases uh, in Supreme Court history. And I wanted to continue from last episode, which was Martial Law. You won't need to have watched that to understand this, but it might give you a little more of of the background. So uh, if you haven't listened to that and you have a chance, it's about 19 minutes long. It's the last episode, episode 15, Martial Law. And it'll give you a little more context to today's episode. That being said, you're not going to need to have listened to it, uh, to bridge into this. So I talked about how awful John Marshall was, uh, 1803. Marbury B. Madison, total game changer, probably the most impactful case in Supreme Court history because it said that the federal government gets to determine whether what it's doing is constitutional. Now, you can see some of the problems with that, that the authority in charge gets to determine uh, if what it's doing is legal or not. I mean, can't you see a few problems with that? And not only that, the Supreme Court, one of the branches of the federal government is the sole arbiter of that. That would create so many problems, and we're going to get through that to that. And then the other biggest thing from the Marshall Court, uh, probably 1819, McCulloch v. Maryland, but there was a few other cases that I touched on totally destroying federalism, totally destroying state sovereignty, which in other episodes in the past I've talked about how the understanding at ratification in 1789 was that these were sovereign and independent states. Uh, forming a union where basically the federal government is just going to handle commerce with foreign nations, treaties, foreign policy, Uh, but other than that, the states are to handle their own business and the powers of the federal government were to be few and defined and only those expressly delegated. So the Marshall Court makes the Supreme Court superior over the other branches of government and it also makes the federal government uh, completely centralize their authority in the Hamiltonian vision, and I've done an episode talking about him as well. Marshall and Hamilton, you know, could almost be the same guy. Uh, in terms of ideology, they pretty much are. That's going to lead up to how what Marshall destroyed, which was the New Republic and the system of checks and balances. The Supreme Court would just continue that legacy. So I'm going to talk about some of the worst decisions. Now, that being said, I'm leaving out any coverage of some some of the most awful decisions that were either overruled or, you know, really have no impact today. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about the Dred Scott decision saying that um, African Americans aren't people, I'm talking about Buck v. Bell in the early uh, 20th century, which uh, said forced sterilization was fine. Some of the cases when uh, Lincoln was president in the uh, war between North and South, uh, denying habeas corpus, things like that. And then the Korematsu case when FDR uh, interned Japanese Americans. And then there were some under Wilson and John Adams, actually, as well. I did talk about the Adams ones in other episodes, but that totally deprived First Amendment rights. So... Leaving all that out because those cases have been overruled or even if not officially, um, they, they really don't have any effect on us today. First one I want to talk about, we're going to start in the New Deal era and uh, we'll have to do an FDR episode at some point because he really screwed things up. So in 1937, the Halvering v. Davis case is handed down. This case challenged the constitutional, constitutionality of the 1935 Social Security Act. So this Davis guy um, says that the act is unconstitutional. He shouldn't have to pay into Social Security. Justice Cordozo, who is another one of these all-praised activist judges, uh, says that, well, Congress can do this under the General Welfare Clause. And, of course, that's going to sound familiar because that's going to bring us back to Hamilton and John Marshall. The General Welfare, a.k.a., can do anything and everything clause so that's why we still have the social security social security today the biggest uh, ponzi scheme in the united states so a year later we have caroline products case during this time You have the New Deal era, FDR tinkering with everything and anything to get his way, all of these technocratic programs, you know, we're going to regulate this, we're going to regulate that, and all he did is drag on the Great Depression. Of course, no one wants to talk about it because it's politically incorrect, but the truth is, all of his stupid programs, you know, we're going to pay you to dig a hole and fill it back in. I guess he hasn't heard of the, you know, Bastiat and the broken windows fallacy or Henry Hazlitt. These programs just totally prolonged the Great Depression. They brought more people into poverty. They killed the middle class. Instead of just letting the free market solve it, we're going to just, you know, have all these technocrats determine everything. But in reality, they don't know what the heck they're doing and they're just making things worse. So everything's regulated, all kinds of industries. So there was a law passed by Congress outlawing. Filled milk in interstate commerce. Filled milk is a type of skim milk mixed with another product. In this case, it was coconut milk. this case, the Supreme Court said, well, this doesn't violate the due process clause. They can do it through the commerce clause. Another one of these elastic clauses, and the Supreme Court has stretched the elastic out so much, Santa could fit in these pants. Another do-anything-and-everything clause. She's just stupid because Congress was never supposed to regulate uh, milk. I mean... The other significance of this case is this footnote 4. You hear about footnote 4. Law schools just praise it. It's the most notorious footnote in U.S. history. But it's a footnote. It's not even part of the opinion. But footnote 4 of Caroline Products, written by Justice Stone, saying that uh, the court's going to be deferential to Congress when it comes to legislation, except for legislation that is aimed at discrete and insular minorities, and there would be an exception to this presumption. Now, this footnote is cited over and over as if it were holding, as if it were president. What it was used for is in equal protection jurisprudence later on, and we'll we'll get into that. But they took this little footnote by him and and made it, you know, all hail footnote 4, And we have this heightened standard for equal protection because the court's got to protect everyone, uh, make everyone equal, make everyone's lives perfect. So that's Caroline Products, 1942, again, New Deal era case, Wickard v. Filburn. Now, I've touched on this in earlier episodes, I think very briefly. Roscoe Filburn, he's a farmer, he's growing wheat. And again, Congress is regulating how much you can do. Of course, life is like this today, we take it for granted, but this is when it all really started. So he's growing wheat on his own farm for his own use. He's not selling it or anything like that. He's fined, and they're saying uh, that he passed the United States uh, standard for grain limits. And he admits, yeah, I did, but I wasn't selling it. wasn't going interstate. He grew more than was permitted. It wasn't sold, and that was enough. And uh, the Supreme Court said that Congress can regulate grain this farmer's growing in his own yard that he's not selling under the Interstate Commerce Clause. Talk about legal gymnastics. And that's how you got the Gonzalez v. Wright case in 2005. And I I did talk about that more on earlier episodes. So I won't get too much into that. But that's the same thing. It's with medicinal marijuana. And, And this is the whole problem... Clarence Thomas wrote a great dissent in this case, and he talked about federalism. Now, I'm sure Clarence Thomas isn't one to go home and light up a joint or encourage others to do that, but he realizes that's what being principled is about. It's not about being Ruth Bader Ginsburg and saying, you know what, I'm going to have my vision on the Supreme Court. No, you're a judge. The last thing we want is anyone's vision. You're supposed to uphold the Constitution you take an oath to. But almost no one in U.S. history has done that. Clarence Thomas has definitely been one of the better ones. Um, no one's perfect. But he understood federalism at least a little bit. And, you know, you hear federalism is a the main theme in these episodes. And you might say, why, why is federalism so important to you? Well, there's two reasons. One, it's, it's in the Constitution. So if we're going to have the Constitution, we should follow it. You know, if we want to change it, there's a process. We could get rid of it, start new. Um, I don't think that's ideal per se, but uh, you could. But if we're going to have it, let's follow. We have federalism. And the second thing is that federalism is a process to create more liberty. In school, you're sta- taught that the states are backwards and we need the federal government to come in and save the day. Um, but that's really not how it's uh, worked out. In most, cases. Uh, in most cases, the federal government comes in and screws things up. Now, occasionally they overturn things and it works out for liberty, but that's the problem is, and, and I'm going to paraphrase and I'm going to screw this up, but in A Man for All Seasons, uh, Thomas More is saying that, yeah, you can twist the law, but I would want the devil to get the benefit of the law because if the devil isn't getting the benefit of the law, then who's next? And then when it's my turn, when I'm up, I'm not going to get the benefit of the law. So you can say, okay, we invalidated state law unconstitutionally, but we got the outcome we liked. But then the next case, when they come in and unconstitutionally invalidate a law you do like, and they make it blanket over all 50 states, then what? So it it cuts both ways, and this way, you're going to have certain states with much more liberal policies, California, New York, but a lot of the other states are going to be more conservative. So, then you can go to the state you like their laws. But, uh, you know, that's what a, that's a much more free society. And we're gonna get into that just now, and it's gonna prove the point I'm making. So the first, uh, that I'm gonna discuss is Angle versus Vitale, not Dick Vitale. Uh, but this is 1962, and this is a First Amendment case. So, New York legislation had a short prayer at the beginning of the day in public schools. And this was the prayer, Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee, and we beg thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. Amen. So just a very, you know, quick prayer, not really religious. You know, God could be, you know, Christian, Jewish, you know, whatever. That's their prayer. Now the parents sued the school superintendent, who was this Vitale guy. And I think it's interesting how much our society's changed. Think about this. The parents are mad that the school is allowing this prayer. Nowadays, the school would never, you know, the schools have gotten so liberal, so left-wing. They'd never be doing something like this. So I think that's interesting, um, especially in New York. And just to show you what things were like at the time, 22 states joined in with, on New York's side supporting their right to say this prayer. You know, many of these states uh, had the same thing. Or, or something similar in place. So this is a First Amendment claim. And in a 6-1 decision, they ruled uh, that New York cannot have this prayer before school. They And they said um, it violated the Establishment Clause in the First Amendment. So this, this is wrong, completely wrong, for two reasons. And the first is... They don't understand what the Establishment Clause means. So, the Establishment Clause means there's no state-sponsored religion. So, the Uni- so, prior to the founding, a lot of countries were, you know, you were a Catholic country, you were Anglican, you were whatever. And, obviously, that led to a lot of war, that led to a lot of religious persecution. We didn't want a state-sponsored religion, but state, first off, is meaning the federal government, not individual states, which is going to lead to the next point. Because, and you have to understand this within the context of the founding, and I could do a whole episode on the First Amendment, on uh, even the Establishment Clause, because in religious freedom, as it relates to religious freedom, because, you know, there's this whole line of cases, and I'm not going to get into all of them, I'm just going to touch on this, because this is one of the, main landmark ones, but First Amendment law, whether it's freedom of speech, assembly, religion, is just all over the place. And it's all based on who's on the court. Um, There's no rhyme or reason to it. But with the Establishment Clause, if you want to know truly what it's supposed to be as the original intent of the Constitution, I believe when the Constitution was ratified, I think it's three i could be off on the number but there were a couple states that had an established religion i can't remember what exactly they were you know um if it was puritan or or what have you but they had established religions this is our state this is our religion and presumably if the constitution if the first amendment was going to overrule that those states either wouldn't have agreed with it or would have had to not have their um established religion so the establishment clause is saying the United States can't impose a state-sponsored religion. The federal government can't force the whole republic to abide by one. The individual states can. And, you know, none of them do anymore, but they did, and there were some in the early republic. And again, whether you agree with that or not, having a state-sponsored religion in an individual state is besides the point. I'm not talking about what policy outcomes I want judges to make. I don't want judges making policy outcomes. You want those changed, vote in people to your legislator, legislature to change them or move to a state that has rules you like. That's the whole concept of federalism. So that's my first point. My second point again, it violates federalism. Now the first amendment, uh, again, establishment clause is meaning the federal government and I've already I've already made the case for why federalism uh, is the best option. But uh, the federal government had no right to strike this down, especially with how minor this is. But again, that's more of a policy argument. That would be something you argue in your state legislature. Well, is this prayer you know, impo- too imposing or not? But it's not a First Amendment argument. And again, here we have the federal court stepping in. And this is just a really uh, you know, transformational time period. There are these oligarchs legislating from the bench. So very few Supreme Court justices just held by the Constitution. Justice Stewart was a lone dissent. He pointed out to what I just said, uh, that there was state-sponsored religion at ratification. And this only applied to the federal government. Now, another wrongly decided, very impactful decision... 1954, you've all heard of it. Brown v. Board of Education. And criticizing this uh, is definitely controversial, I'll admit that. But this is based liberty. This isn't, uh, you know, milk toast liberty. If you want to watch that, uh, those are a dime a dozen. So, based liberty, based opinion, Brown v. Board of Education was a violation of federalism. So, I'm sure you heard of the case, but just to recap, this was the federal government basically mandating that public schools in states cannot be segregated. Now, in theory, you can say, well, this isn't really a bad idea. Sure, of course not. But the federal government has no constitutional authority to enforce this. And, oh, but what about the 14th Amendment? No. The 14th Amendment was ratified... I believe 1868, not long after the war between the North and South. For 90 years, or what have you, segregation of schools was never an issue. So you know at times of the ratification of the 14th Amendment, they're not talking about integrating schools. They're talking about some of these southern states that had black codes where basically uh, African Americans couldn't vote, couldn't uh, enforce a contract have courts enforced. So just the most basic rights, even less than we even think about we have today, things we totally take for granted. The 14th Amendment was ratified to give blacks the most basic legal protections and liberties. It had nothing to do with all this crazy stuff they're doing with the 14th Amendment today. And if it did mean something more than that, then why was it enforced for the other 90 years, right? So again, it's, it's a policy decision. It's, you know, maybe, maybe it's a good idea, but, uh, it's not constitutional in a judge. Their job is to uphold the constitution. They take an oath to not to rewrite the law because they think it's a good policy idea. And, oh, he, he, he must like segregation. Uh. He criticized Brown v. Board. Well, I mean, I'm sure that's what Atlantic or the New York Times would say about it. But those people don't know anything. And there are great legal minds that agree with the position I hold. Uh, Justice reinquist again, one of the best Supreme Court justices in U.S. history, probably the best of the you know 20th century. Him and Clarence Thomas, of course, he was there for a lot longer in the 20th century who really did try to uphold federalism, and he was a clerk in that time, and he said this decision was good in theory, but the problem when you have a majority trying to defend rights of a minority, the majority, in the end, still gets to determine what the rights are. So that's an interesting take. It's not the way I thought of it, but he's right. I mean, it's a good point. You can say, well, I'm going to give you these rights. You need more rights. Well, what rights? Well, I get to determine because I'm the majority. Makes sense. Now, he backtracked on that because, again... Uh, it it's not PC to say that this decision was wrong, was unconstitutional. So you're not going to get in the Supreme Court uh, holding those controversial views. Now, Learned Hand, another very famous uh, legal mind, said, well, this, de- this decision, uh, in effect, created a third legislative chamber. He's absolutely right. Uh, I'd say they had one long before that. But this case is legislating from the bench. Clarence Thomas has been critical of it, Um, not as much from the federalism perspective, but he thinks it's been um, expanded further than what it originally meant. But this case has been a disaster, too, from a policy perspective. Since then, you've had federal district courts basically... Forcing students to be bused all around hundreds of hours. I mean, think of that, your kid. They have to spend hundreds of hours a year on a bus because some judge in a federal court says so and they're drawing these lines. Uh, it's just stupid. It's a complete violation of federalism that these federal district courts are telling people where they have to go to school. Um, and on top of that, again, it's, what good is it doing for these children? Of course, these ivory tower, you know, type of people don't think about practical consequences like that. They only think about their own high-minded ideals. So, now we're going to turn to another one I'm sure you've all heard of. Roe v. Wade, 1973. This was the case, as you know, that uh, legalized abortion in all 50 states. And again, back to federalism. Uh, If you don't like the outcome of this case, then you should say, well, hmm... If you're here in Michigan like me, if the Supreme Court didn't say all 50 states have to allow abortion, it would still be illegal here. It'd be illegal in a lot of states. And the problem with this case, not just from the policy outcome, um, first off, you know, just from a principle of you have a government that can't even protect innocent life. Um, What's the point of even having it? You know, if you can't even protect innocent human life, how are you going to do anything else right so there, there's some food for thought but in terms of the legal aspect what the court did and it's super convoluted reasoning which just shows you they didn't have any logic in it it's kind of like if you have this coach who's trying to teach you something and they just say well i've done i've coached this a long time you know this is how we done it but they can't actually explain why you should do it this way you know they they suck as a coach right a good coach can explain it to you can show you can teach you well it's kind of the same thing here a good good constitutional jurisprudence has an argument, a logical uh, train of argument breakdown why they did it. If they're just kind of out here in la la land, it shows they're just you know they're grasping at straws. So that's what they did here in this case. They woman has an absolute right to privacy. But this case, because the legal rationale was so bad, you had lefties as legal scholars, prominent mainstream Left wing, because mainstream is left wing. Legal scholars who said, "Okay, come on here," you know, maybe they like the outcome, maybe they're pro-choice, but uh, they know there's nothing in the Constitution. I mean, you have um, this is what Lawrence Tribe, Lawrence Tribe said this was a smokescreen because again, there's just nothing rational. Alan Dershowitz criticized the opinion. Justice Rehnquist, again, one of the f- few good ones, said that. The court, in the majority opinion, they found a right in the 14th Amendment unknown to the drafters of it. That's such a good line. Because it's true, you know, the 14th Amendment, as I said, ratified late 1860s. States had had abortion outlawed since as early as the 1820s. So if abortion was supposed to... Come on, it's ridiculous. We all know they didn't mean abortion rights are going to be protected in the 14th Amendment. But say they did... Uh, then it would have been illegal since 1868, right? And then, oh, over a hundred years later, we're gonna decide, oh, you know what? This is a right in the 14th Amendment? It's just absurd reasoning. I mean, yes, you have millions of innocent children being killed. So, you know, that's something that's awful. Um, this, this is just, just line of logic or lack thereof. But, but what is it? It's not that these people are dumb. It's that they want their policy and they'll do anything to get it. That's the problem with the Supreme Court. That's what it comes down to. They don't answer to anyone. Once they're up there, they do what they want. And you wonder why certain conservatives, and I was going to get into this here in a second, get more liberal. John Roberts, Anthony Kennedy. Because they know they're going to be praised by the New York Times if they vote for this woke case you know the social justice cause so it's tempting i mean it wouldn't tempt me because i would never want to be pra- if i ever get praised by the new york times then someone comes slap me okay because i must have done something awful <laughs> but these guys i guess they like being the praise but you know power corrupts i mean i'm not in their robes you know i mean you sit there for 10 20 years you're isolated you know you get drunk off your own power i guess and that's what i wanted to get into you know somewhat tying it into this nomination i hate to be the bearer of bad news i don't think roe v wade's getting overturned and this has nothing to do with amy comey barrett's jurisprudence Uh, i know she's a strong catholic so presumably she would be very pro-life but i think the supreme court is so married to precedent and this inspired this episode because someone on facebook precedent 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 we need precedent because it establishes consistency. What is consistency if it's consistently wrong? Stupid. You take an oath to uphold the Constitution. Go by that, not precedent, not stare decisis. Follow your oath. But, um, quote unquote, originalists. Um, they still follow precedent, whether it's constitutional or not. Um, you know, it's almost like there's this you know thing they sign in blood ink behind closed doors. Well, we won't overturn precedent. No, it happens, but very rarely. And I think it just gives them this kind of esoteric. You know, we're we're the philosopher kings. We find rights that you rubes don't understand. And apparently, the people who signed the documents didn't either. So uh, that's my view. I think. Any quote-unquote originalist, or some people call him conservative, there's a difference, um, is not going to rock the boat, you know. I mean, Clarence Thomas is going to be about as good as it gets, and he's pretty good on things. Um, It's not perfect, but he's good. Rehnquist was great. Scalia, you know, he had his problems. He was a textualist. Textualism gives you some issues because you're looking at, as the name implies, just the text. Well... And you're reading dictionaries and doing all this stuff, and you can come to the right result a lot of times, but um, you also have to look at what they meant by the text at ratification, what was agreed upon, look at the debates, that gives you the true intent of the Constitution from an originalist perspective, because the text... I mean, you could just look up words. They can mean anything. And that's why Scalia, you know, has gotten some things wrong in the past. He hasn't really been that great on federalism either. Great on the Second Amendment, I'll give him that. So, that exact point channels into um, a case relating to Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Now, that's a 1992 case. This was the case that reaffirmed Roe v. Wade. And in this case, Pennsylvania had a statute that said, you're going to get an abortion, you have to tell your husband about something along those lines. And they made up this undue burden test. So they basically outlawed saying, um, no, a law requiring you to tell your husband that you're going to murder his child uh, is unconstitutional. Where they found that in the constitution, I do not know. Maybe Nicolas Cage found it in Hidden Ink. These decisions are funny because it's almost like they're writing some kind of administrative law, hospital health code, Hey, you know, first trimester, abortion's fine, second, blah, 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 third, you can outlaw it if you want, and then in this Planned Parenthood, they have this undue burden test, you know, you can't have this, you can do that, you can do this. I mean, is that not legislating? And again, these, quote-unquote, you know, these are Reagan appointees who upheld Roe v. Wade in 1992, Anthony Kennedy and Sandra Day O'Connor. So if you're a conservative, um, don't get your hopes up. You know, I mean, at best, quote-unquote conservatives, uh, you know, you could call them originalists, but they're not that originalists. You know, they're more religion, religionists maybe than uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. They're originalists on some things, but they're not on others. You know, the best the best case scenario, I think, is that it doesn't get worse. You know, is that they don't start ruling that uh, we all have to force men to play women's sports and, and all this other crazy stuff. But as far as actually overturning precedent, they love it too much. They're infatuated with it. I don't know. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. But uh, I think you want to get rid of uh, mandated abortion by the federal government. Federalism's the answer. I mean, what if a state says, hey, look, this is the law on our books. The U.S. government has no authority to do it. We're going to do things our way. What are they going to do, send federal troops in? I doubt it. States need to reclaim their sovereignty. That's the only way we get liberty back. Um, We're never going to have 51% of the people that say, you know what, I want limited government. I want a balanced budget. I want lower taxes. I want to be able to run my business the way I want. Um... I want to be able to choose my own social values, not have, you know, these progressive ideals enforced on me. It's never going to, and we're going to vote people who do that, you know, and the president, the Congress, the courts, you're never going to get all that. You know, I mean, maybe 100, 200 years from now, not in our lifetime, not in mine, probably not my kids. So what do you do? Federalism, states that hold those values, communities, even local levels. Hey, these are like-minded people. We're not going to enforce unconstitutional laws. That's the answer. That's the only. That's the only answer. I mean, yeah, you can elect people to federal level that are going to stop it from getting worse. Maybe you get some good ones, but to have all three branches to actually change things, good luck. Good luck. It'd be nice. Good luck. Not happening. In that same tone, NFIB versus Sibelius, the Obamacare case. Who wrote the opinion? John Roberts. A quote originalist. (laughs) Nah, I I don't even know if you call him an originalist because he certainly isn't. So they said the individual mandate from Obamacare was a tax. Therefore, Congress can enforce it. They can force you to buy a product that you don't want. Or make you pay a fine for it. Now, the rest of the quote conservatives, Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas Alito, all dissented. And you should look this up if you're bored or interested in this because there's this real sketchy thing about Roberts, kind of flip-flopping and what his opinion was. He tried to get the other quote conservatives on his side and they wouldn't budge, apparently. Well, good, I'm glad. Clarence Thomas had a dissent. He said, you know, this, this... there's no right for this under the Commerce Clause. It basically makes it so you can do anything and everything. He's absolutely right. So the last case I want to cover today, Obergefell v. Hodges, that is the gay marriage case, 2015. Same thing as I've talked about these last couple, where you have these quote originalists, quote conservatives. And I don't know if you call Kennedy's not an originalist, um, and he's had he's been good on some things, but. You know he's right on the Sibelius case, but he's not right on this. You know, uh, Kennedy joins with the four liberals, saying that the Fourteenth Amendment equal protection clause allows for same-sex marriage. Now, it's wrong. It, it's flat out wrong. Here's here's why. Now the argument. See the argument here is a little better. I I will say than you know, the, the abortion cases or something like that, because the and I, I actually used to think it was correct, because you say, well, equal protection, if straight, if heterosexuals can get married, homosexuals can get married. You know, it makes sense, equal protection. Yeah, under maybe a textualist reading, but under, again, when was the 14th Amendment ratified? 1868. Do you think when they ratified it, they had in mind that gays could be married? No, of course not. Of course not. Like I said, what did they have in mind? They had rights for blacks, mainly in the South, where they were being deprived of the most basic liberties. A congressman from Ohio. This, this is the key. And I heard this from Dr. Kevin Goodsman. Congressman from Ohio said to his constituents, don't worry about this 14th Amendment. It's not going to change anything in the North. That's all you need to know about it. The North had these basic rights for blacks, so the 14th Amendment wasn't going to change anything. So it had nothing to do with abortion. It had nothing to do with gay rights. It had nothing to even do with you know, other rights that we think maybe we should all have. It was this bare minimum standard so that blacks could have the same rights as whites. That's it. That's all you need to know. Case closed. But I can go a step further. And again, this has nothing to do with policy. If you, you know, well, I'll get into that. At the 14th Amendment ratification and at the constitutional convention how how was marriage marriage was defined and is defined as a man and a woman gays can get civil unions they can get other things they're not being deprived because this this is a due process so the other argument then is the due process clause no person uh, shall be deprived of life liberty property without due process of law again how is due process understood in the 14th amendment and at the constitutional convention Well, it probably didn't mean homosexual, same-sex marriage. top of that, gays aren't deprived of marriage. Marriage, as understood as a man and a woman, they have every right to get into if they want. It's not like Loving v. Virginia, back which was another case. There was a statute there in Virginia, blacks and whites couldn't get married. That's being deprived of a marriage. But a marriage is understood in a man and woman, homosexuals don't want that marriage. They want a different relationship. So they can have a civil union. They can have something else. You just can't call it marriage. Not deprived of that. So that is another point. Justice Scalia, and he's... One thing you got to love about Scalia, he is incredibly witty. He said the 14th Amendment has become mystical aphorisms of a fortune cookie. So basically, you you open it up, you never know what you'll find. Clarence Thomas, um, in his wisdom had a very good point. He said that liberty is freedom from government, not freedom to government services, such as a marriage contract. I agree with that. Kind of the point is that, first off, the government shouldn't be in marriage at all. Marriage is a covenant between two people and God, or in a secular, just two people. Government shouldn't be in marriage. That's a commitment between people. Notwithstanding that, again, what does this go to? federalism if california and new york want to recognize same-sex unions whether they call it marriage whether they call it you know whatever you want to call it they can do that at the state level they can do that but the federal government has no right just like with abortion just like with obamacare um just like with whatever else i've talked about in this episode to come across and say all 50 states you have to do this Different regions have different interests, different cultures, different values. There's never going to be liberty with a central authority dictating to 300 plus million people. At the founding, the country was tiny compared to what it is today, both geographically and population wise. They're mostly all Christian. There were a ton of differences. They were much more similar than they are now, but there were a ton of differences, and even then they said, "Uh uh-uh. We have to have local self-government because of these differences. Now our differences are way bigger. And yet, the power is more centralized. Roy Moore, you probably heard of, he was uh, in the Supreme Court, and he said, uh, Alabama, we're not going to issue these marriage licenses. And in 2018, he was stripped from that position for doing so. But again, this just shows, I mean, good for him for taking a stand on on upholding federalism, and I think there was something similar in Kentucky and maybe a couple other states. And again, this isn't about policy. This isn't about what I think about gay marriage. Like I said, the government shouldn't be in it at all. But what this is about is the Constitution, federalism, And oligarchs, only five of the nine needing to vote a certain way, coming in and telling all of us how we have to live. I find it disgusting. It's repugnant to the Constitution. It's repugnant to federalism. If Roy Moore, if Alabama wants to do something different, they have every right to. So, that's today. I just wanted to, I hope you found that interesting um, I hope I didn't get too long-winded. I wanted to get enough detail to cover the cases but not make it boring. But you can just see those are 20th and a couple more recent cases where a couple things. Federalism is uh, completely ignored. And I'm going to talk about the 14th Amendment. That's what uh, I got some books on because I really want to be comprehensive and accurate when I talk about it. Because they've used that. It's funny. They have the Commerce Clause, the Necessary and Proper Clause, the General Welfare Clause. They've expanded to mean anything you think that would be enough, but uh, the court also will use the 14th Amendment when those ones can't get it done. And, you know, I'm critical of the Supreme Court, but here's the reason why. We know the Congress, the presidents, they don't care about the Constitution, 99% of them. Uh, It's an inconvenience. They ignore it. They do what they want. The Supreme Court is the only branch of government that uses the Constitution for tyranny. They don't just ignore it. But they twist it to do things that they shouldn't be doing. They're acting as legislators. So I just wanted to wrap up. Many of you probably heard uh, Dr. Ron Paul suffered some kind of medical condition on his show. I don't want to speculate as to what it is. He seems to be doing all right. But uh, just pray for him. Um, he's one of the few statesmen in our lifetime. And I mean that he is the Thomas Jefferson of our day. And whether you agree with him on everything or not policy-wise, you have to respect his integrity uh, in public life for five decades or so, no affairs, no sex scandals. How many people can say that? He never wavered on his principles. He never wanted the limelight. He never wanted credit. But he inspired a generation. Uh, Thanks to him, people are talking about the Constitution again. People are trying to take steps to preserve what liberty we have before it's too late. So he's a huge inspiration to me. He's on my thing back here. Um, I'm looking forward to hopefully meeting him in November. Just a man of integrity, and and you don't see that. Not a politician, a statesman. Of course, he's an OBGYN. He delivered, I don't know, thousands of babies. He served in the military, so he isn't just some career politician. But um, And he's still uh, got his show. He's involved with the Mises Institute. So... Um, And his wife, uh, from what I've seen, just seems like a wonderful, wonderful woman. Just super sweet. I've heard her in interviews. And, of course, you know his son, uh, Rand. So uh, pray for the Paul family and Dr. Paul. uh, I will be. And, um, you know, we're really blessed to have him because there's some, you know, most politicians suck. There's a couple good ones. But very few are as selfless and just so committed to principle and integrity as Dr. Paul. So, hey, thanks for tuning in. Check out ChooseWisely.org to stay in touch with what we're doing. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe to help us bring you more content. Have a great week. Thanks for tuning in. Take care.